All right. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, please? Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 3 through 7. And the message entitled, Don't Pervert God's Love. We stated that Paul exhorted the believers now to walk in the love of God for others in contrast to love for self, uh, as lost sinners in the world often do. It's Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. And the walk in the love of God for others was in verse 1 and 2 that we saw last time. Now it's the walk of love for self in verse 3 through 7, but it's really lust, not love. We'll see that. So we want to look at the exhortation of Paul to walk in the love of God for others um, um, as a foundation behind this, because that's the contrast. And we saw that our example of walking in love is by mimicking God as children of God there in verse 1. Then secondly, we saw the extreme of walking in love is after the example of Christ who gave himself for us in the first portion of verse 2. And then thirdly, the extent of walking in love is an offering and sacrifice to God that is a sweet-smelling aroma to him, the rest of verse 2. Paul now continues his exhortation to the believers. Remember, he's talking to Christians, dealing with those living for sexual lust by using others, and it's characterized by three things. Listen carefully. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The exhortation to the believers dealing with those living for sexual lust is characterized by the following three things. First of all, we have the person living for perverted love, verse 3 and 4. Second, you have the penalty for living by perverted love, verse 5. And thirdly, you have the potential danger of living in perverted love, verse 6 and 7. He begins with the person living for perverted love. Notice verse 3 and 4. He begins with verse 3. The Apostle Paul started or stated here that the believer is to abstain from sexual sin. Listen to the words, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Paul indicated the obvious distinction between the change of subjects by the word but. He commanded the believer to be a mimic of God in verse 1 and 2. To walk in divine love to benefit others. That divine love blossoms all the other loves. He now communicates that sexual sin was not to be part of their lives. The word and in verse 2 is chi, a continuative conjunction. As children of God, we are to walk in agape love, selfless love. The word but in our text here is also chi but marks the contrast of divine love and sinful, selfish lust in order to benefit oneself. Notice Paul admonished believers that the sin of fornication was not to be practiced in their lives, involving their physical bodies. He's addressing Christians. 
If he's addressing Christians, that means there's a potential, and that means that what's going on. Are we clear on that? Okay? When you as parents confront your children, it's not because it's not going on. And it's not because there's no potential on whatever level you're warning them. The word fornication, porneia, indicates sexual activity of every kind in its various forms and practices. This includes petting or fondling, be it over the clothes, under the clothes, it makes no difference. We get our word pornography from it. The noun form appears 26 times in the New Testament, 30 other times in different forms, a total of 56 times. The word usually is associated with single people participating in any form of sexual uh, activity, including intercourse, in contrast to adultery for a married person committing sexual sin against their husband and wife. This distinction helps in one way, but it is not absolutely correct in another way. For a single person fornicating with a married person is committing fornication, but that married person is committing adultery. So, Sexual sin is happening, but because of the position that distinguishes a single from a married person, two different sins are being committed. Okay? Linsky, the scholar, says, defines it as prostitution in all its forms. A single person is sexually immoral. And when they do, they sin against their own body. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 6.18. The person who fornicates sins against their own body. Every sin is outside the body, but he who commits fornication sins against their own body as a single person. Now, notice Paul admonished believers that the sin of all uncleanness and covetousness was not to be practiced in their life either. Involving their minds, then carried out in and by their bodies. The word uncleanness um, means immoral or impure acts that progress and degrade through lust. The idea is that of being foul, lewd, and dirty in whatever acts goes on. Without any concern or thought for the person being used or defiled or corrupted. Sexual love apart from being a Christian and husband and wife is very self-centered, very destructive. There's probably no sin that is more destructive than sexual sin. And that's why our society is so degraded and broken down. That's why there's so many marriages and there's no uh, bonding the way it's supposed to be because there's so much permissiveness. This word appears ten times in the New Testament. Notice the word covetousness. It means greediness of desire to have more avarice, if you will. But the context is sexual. It is an unsatisfied craving and lusting for not only more sex, but a progression. You know, if you were in the world, that the law of demands and returns is very, very cruel. You begin holding hands, then it's around the shoulder, then it's around the waist, and it keeps progressing. And if it stopped at some point, next time I pick up where I left off. I don't go to the beginning. Because every time I get less gratification from the place I was at. That's the sinful nature. That's the reality of it. 
The more you experience, the more you want, the less you're going to be satisfied. Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says, And I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so you cannot do that which you wish. So those of you who are young and have not engaged in sexual intercourse, keep yourself. You will never regret it. But if you don't, you will regret it all the days of your life. Trust me. The word appears ten times again in the New Testament right here. Now, both terms are often joined together as we find them in our text here and are qualified by the word all. Anything that comes to mind, an opportunity to gratify oneself, all. Having no sense of shame, guilt, or hesitation to participate in anything sexual. As we look to our world today, we are at the lowest point of our nation. We call it, we're sexually free. I feel comfortable in my skin. So we've changed our vocabulary and definitions of corruption, perversion, and immorality. Because we live in an amoral society. There's no right, there's no wrong. Judgments are not to be made. So they say. This was the Roman world of Paul. He's told us in chapter 419, who being past feelings, having given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. The word lewdness, again, we saw that alcelsia means unbridled lust, outrageous shamelessness. There's no blushing, there's no hesitation, nothing. Notice in verse 3, Paul admonished the believer to never be accused of sexual immorality. This is an imperative command. Let it not even be named among you. The imperative is in the present tense and middle voice. The sin of sexual fornication is not to ever be going on in their lives. That's what it's saying. This is emphatic. Not to be named even among you who are Christians. Notice the reason is people would equate Christianity and sexual sin as one or compatible. That's unbiblical. That's what we used to do in the world. We used to get drunk in the world. We get loaded in the world. We steal in the world. We lie in the world. All the things that we've already covered. Now, we don't do those things. We have the potential. And if we walk in the flesh, we probably will walk in those things. The phrase is an, as uh, is fitting means to stand out. According. To be becoming or seemingly appropriate for saints. No one should ever look at you and because you drink as a Christian or because you fornicate or because you lie. They should never equate that Christians are liars, Christians are fornicators, Christians are drunkards. You understand? That's the idea. As you know, the word saint, hagios, means we get the word holy from it. 
That's the same word for holy. God's holiness demands his wrath. We're going to see that. And his wrath demands his holiness. This was the life of the old man without Christ. We've seen that. Put off the old man, put on the new man. If you have a boyfriend or girlfriend or you're engaged, if you want to ruin that relationship, have sex together. You'll destroy your relationship. You'll ruin what God has for you first best. You'll absolutely ruin your relationship as a Christian. Look at verse 4. The Apostle Paul stated that the believer is to abstain from immoral language. That comes next. Paul was concerned that the believer abstained from vulgarity by words, neither filthiness. And the word filthiness means obscenity or filthy stories involving imaginations and thoughts. The word appears only this one time in the New Testament. The word indicates dirty, filthy, nasty, degrading words to express the gift of sex between a man and a woman that God has imparted. And what vulgarity we have today in rap music. Just profanity under music, just vulgarity degrading to women. And women celebrate it today. They're part of the problem. Wow. Paul was concerned that the believer abstained from words of no value also, nor foolish talking. The phrase foolish talking, maralogia, means silly or stupid chatter that comes from a drunk. The first word, moral, we get moron from it. You remember being drunk? How you talking? Sound like you got something wrong upstairs, right? These are the words. Again, it is in relationship to sexual matters. This is our context. The word appears only this time again. So these words that we're studying here only appear once in the New Testament. Notice Paul was concerned that the believer abstained from double-meaning words also, nor coarse jesting. The phrase coarse jesting means trying to be funny in a very flippant and witty cleverness, but in a dirty sexual connotations. Salacious quirks, sexual innuendos that have suggestive sexual puns and uh, double meanings. The word derives from the word an easy turning of speech. Once again, this is the only time it appears. Then notice Paul was concerned that the believer see this type of sexual conduct as incompatible as saints, which are not fitting, but rather giving them thanks. He says it does not line up with Christianity, which is not fitting. The word fitting means doesn't come up to or arrive to. Fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, and coarse jesting are just not proper, appropriate, or conducive 
with Christianity, with the believer's life. In the tense is the imperfect, referring to the present duty left unfulfilled. He says that the kind of conduct and words that line up with the Christian life is, but rather giving of thanks. The word thanks, Eucharista, get the word Eucharist from it that the Catholics put for the host. It means being and expressing gratitude and appreciation. For what? For being grateful, for having been forgiven for all our sins. That's what should come forth from my mouth. For having been made a child of God and able to live by God's divine agape love rather than being in bondage to sexual immorality of the world that many of us used to live by. That God had set us free, that God delivered us, that now we can appreciate what God has designed us for. What a difference it makes. All the difference in the world. You know, it's like, um, you ever go to a baseball game at night? Under the lights? Man, it's beautiful. Got green grass, that red, dark dirt, lights and everything. But if you go down into that infield and you grab a shovel full of that beautiful red, brown dirt, and you take it home and you throw it in your brand new white carpet in the living room, now that very same dirt that looked beautiful there looks dirty in the living room because it's out of its proper place. And so with sex, and it destroys, it's out of its proper place. And the woman always carries the baggage more than the man. Emotionally, spiritually, and all. Always. The problem with fornication, sex before marriage, is that it is not just a physical thing like having a sandwich. But it's a violation that bears shame, guilt, and at times has lifelong consequences. For the woman's perspective, losing the evidence of her virginity being humbled by a man, and the scriptures make that very clear, having it imprinted in her mind, maybe getting pregnant. You have the whole problem of so many sexual transmitted diseases today, they can't even keep up with them, let alone AIDS. From the man's perspective, being a fool, thinking sex makes him a man, while only making men as an animal and slave to sexual lust. I have known many people who regret it, not waiting till marriage to have sex. But I have never, ever met a person who ever regretted waiting. Never. 1 Corinthians 6.16 says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Paul is telling the Corinthians. Some of the Corinthians were going to the temple of Aphrodite. Not Aphrodite, but the, 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 the Corinth there. Um, with the temple prostitutes. And then in Ephesus, you have the temple of Aphrodite. And I'm sure some were going there. Okay? He says, you, you make Christ one with that harlot. You can hold hands. You can kiss. You can hug. But 
Having sex is a whole different thing. Too often Christians are accused of teaching that sex is sin. That's a lie. Sex for a Christian is a precious gift from God to bring forth children. Sex is for enjoying one's husband and wife without guilt, shame, but actually pleasing God. Sex is for binding and strengthening the marriage in a very intimate way like no other. Sex is for pleasing one another as one flesh. God has designed it that way. But in the context of marriage, not outside of it. Listen to Proverbs. Um, Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. It says, drink water from your own cisterns. He's not talking about a water fountain, okay? He's talking about your wife and your husband. And running waters from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountains be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. The bond of marriage. Study the Song of Solomon, the honeymoon night. Very descriptive, very joyous in celebration. The speech of the believers to gratify and glorify God. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt communication proceed or, or corrupt words proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So that should be the priority. Ephesians 5, 11 through 12 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. That was one of the things as I um, came to the Lord. I, 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 I couldn't go back to my friends the next week and talk. Hey, what you guys do last night? I know what they did. I don't want to hear her talk about it. I didn't have to ask them. I know what they did. Colossians 4 says, Let your speech always be with grace. Season with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. 1 Peter 4.11 If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Romans 13.14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So you don't go visit your girlfriend at two in the morning or your boyfriend. You don't go to secluded places. You don't put yourself in positions where you tempt yourself. Simple. If you start the engine, you're going to want to drive the car. It's just the way it is. This is the person living for perverted love. Notice, secondly, comes the penalty for living 
by perverted love. Verse 5. The Apostle Paul reminded the believers what they already knew about immoral people inheriting the kingdom of God. This was not news. Paul called attention to the knowledge they possess. For you, for this you know, the phrase you know is the indicative present active tense. Literally, you are knowing. This was not imparting knowledge, but reminding them of what had already been given to them. The statement refers to knowledge already present in them about the individuals who keep on practicing sin in the kingdom of God. The knowledge is basic to every believer born again. The habitual life of sin is incompatible with the habitual fellowship with God. The minute you're born again, the minute I was born again, I didn't know the Bible, I never read the Bible, but the minute I was born again, I knew I couldn't do what I did every day of my life before that act, before that day. I knew what I did was wrong. I knew it wouldn't please God, and I hadn't read the Bible. So the, it's basic, it's the ABCs of Christianity. Notice Paul declared to them that no fornicator would ever have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. No unclean person, no covetous man, who is an idolater. The number of people, notice, includes, excludes everyone by the word no. It means anyone and everyone. There will be no exception. Not one. The word fornication, again, is the same word, but a different form. Pornos. It refers back to verse 3. All fornication, indicating the person who is committing sexual sin of every kind, including intercourse, as a habit of life. Now, maybe some of you were involved in this this week with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. And you call yourself a Christian. You can't be doing that. And you know it. And it hinders your relationship with God. And it blows your witness. And it puts a black eye on the Christian community. This includes singles and married. One committing fornication, the other one would be adultery. Colossians 3, 5 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, and covetousness. Listen, which is idolatry. Because that's what you live for. It dominates. It, it enslaves you. Do you know the billion dollar industry in pornography? It's not because people don't like it. And women are as much into pornography as men. May even more now. Tables have been turned around. Notice Paul declared to them that no unclean person would ever have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Every one of these ones. The word unclean person again refers back to verse 3, all uncleanness, indicating the immoral and pure person 
mastered by lust. The idea is that of being foul again, lewd and dirty in sexual things without any concern or thought for the person being used or defiled or corrupted. doesn't matter. Whatever it takes. Paul declared to them that no covetous person would ever also inherit the kingdom of God. He goes one by one. He could have just said all these, but he goes one by one. He's making, he's making a point. He's talking to Christians. If there is no potential, why is he confronting them? The phrase covetous person, again, refers back to verse 3, indicating a greedy person regarding his or her sexual desire to have more of what doesn't belong to them. It belongs to someone else. The person is one who is um, unsatisfied again with their craving and lusting for not only more, but for other individuals, more in variety. The person is a slave to sex. Again, the more they experience, the more they want, the less they are gratified and satisfied. It's a revolving door. Then Paul noticed, declared, sexually immoral people are idolaters. It means worshipers of a false god. You worship an idol, false god. The text is a condemnation, really, to sexual involvement in the body, the mind, the heart. And in words, the whole picture is here. It takes the physical as well as the verbal. Idolatry and sex are tied together. Always, idols and sex go together. The entire Old Testament, a lot of the religions. You have Molech, Ashtoreth, Baal, and their high places, the sexual practices. You have them today. They call them gentlemen's clubs, porno shops. Same religion. No different. The New Testament, you had again the Corinthian, Acropolis. In Ephesus, you have the Temple of Dianus. Same kind of thing went on. So sex and idols go together. When a young woman idolizes a man, she gives herself to that man, idolatry. She figures he's worth it. But she has no idea until after it happens that he's not. And that she has made the worst mistake. As well as a young man. No different. Notice the Apostle Paul reiterated to the believers of what they already knew about the holiness of the kingdom of God and their inheritance. For this you know. Paul had taught them about their capacity to live holy through salvation. Listen to what he said in chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Chapter 1, verse 7. Through the forgiveness of our sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The riches. Think of all that he forgave you. Make you whiter than snow, bury your sins in the deepest ocean than mine. Everything. 
Wow. Through living the crucified life that you put off the old man concerning the former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and being renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Now, Paul is no way, in any way, any shape, talking about sinlessness or perfection. None of us will, will never be perfect or sinless. But we can hit the mark in obedience. And in areas of sexuality, you have to be careful. There's the greatest destruction to you and everyone else around you. It's not only you. A young lady goes and gets pregnant. She affects her parents. She affects that child. She affects herself. She affects future family gatherings. She affects everything. It's a domino effect on society. The same with the young man. Notice Paul had taught them about their inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's imparted by Jesus. It says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In chapter 1, verse 11. It's through Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 14, it's assured by the Holy Spirit. Who? Meaning the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession through the praise of His glory. Something's been bequeathed to us through our repentance by His grace and His love and His holiness. Chapter 1, verse 18, illuminated to us by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the riches of His glory of His inheritance in the saints. All that he's done for us, all that he's bequeathed to us, all that we can be now in Christ Jesus. The sister epistle, Colossians, chapter 1, verse 12, expresses in gratitude, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. See, Paul is not teaching Two kingdoms, as some people think. The kingdom of Christ and God refer to one kingdom here. The kingdom of God is to come in the millennial reign. Christ will be reigning supreme. The kingdom is present and yet to come. The church will not bring in the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. But will return with Christ to set up the kingdom. Christ sets it up, not us. So you always have people talking about kingdom theology or kingdom kingdom living or dominion theology. That's the same kind of rubbish that they're going to set up the kingdom. They're not going to establish the kingdom. Jesus sets up the kingdom. The millennium, as you know, is for the Jews to fulfill all the promises that God gave to them in the Old Testament and the land that they never fulfilled. The church is glorified with Jesus and we will rule and reign with him during those thousand years. You see, the kingdom of Christ and God refers to one person. One kingdom, one person. The Greek has one article for both Christ and God. Christ is a title, Messiah, Christos. The Messiah is Jesus. The Messiah, Jesus, is God. This is one of many places where it says Jesus is God over and over again. <clears throat> 
John illustrates this point very well. Listen carefully to Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their place or their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Eternal death, separation from God. There's where I would go if I had not repented with Jesus Christ. There's where I belong. There's where I would be judged. By his grace, he gives opportunity now to confess and to repent. And he makes us white as snow. And he gives us a divine nature so we can live to his glory, to his pleasure, according to his word. You see, the Christian is to be different from the non-believer, but not cut himself off from reaching the lost sinners. Listen now to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Paul dealing with a young man that was sleeping with his stepmother, having sex with her. Uh, he gives the clarification here. Listen carefully. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So I never told you to isolate yourself. I never told you to, to get away from the non-believer. The Christian is not to judge the unbeliever who is lost and under God's wrath, but rather the believer in sin. Listen carefully. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. Paul gives a clear stipulation. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have we to do with judging those who are outside, the non-believer? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person, that young man. He says, turn him over to Satan. You don't turn non-believers over to Satan. You turn believers who are in sin and won't repent over to Satan. Are we clear on that? The non-believer belongs to Satan. Okay? Paul makes very clear here, as I just read you, that you're not to eat with people and hang out with people unless they repent, who call themselves Christians. My next-door neighbor's a non-believer. He's living with his girlfriend. He's been living there for five years, and he's, hey, ex, come over and have a hamburger. We're going to have somebody else. Oh, okay, I'll go over and have a hamburger. I can do that and be a witness. I won't partake in other junk and be a witness. But if he's a Christian and he's living with a girl and he invites me over, I'm not going over because he calls himself a Christian. Are we clear on that? Now, people call that self-righteous today. No, that's biblical. Faith for the wounds of a friend, deceive for the kisses of the enemy. Are we clear on that? This is the penalty of living by perverted love. Notice thirdly, verse 6 and 7, the potential danger of living in perverted love. 
Verse 6, the Apostle Paul proclaimed a strong warning to the believers. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Wow. Paul stated the clear and obvious danger of a believer being deceived regarding this matter of sex and believing that they could still inherit the kingdom of God. Context, context, context. This is an imperative, present, active command, not a suggestion. This is not a hypothetical situation, but a real possibility. The word deceive means to be, to cheat or beguile. All the warnings of scripture are to the believer. The unbeliever is already deceived by Satan's sin in the world. For you and I to tell a non-believer to not have sex and believe they can stop, we're crazier than them. Because the only way you can stop is if you're born again. It's unreasonable for us to expect that of them. So what's the solution? I preach Christ to them. Then Christ has a change in their heart and their life. Notice the way is by empty words. Paul states the clever and not so obvious manner of deception. Empty words, kinos. Vain words devoid of truth about the warning. That sin does not bother God. People say, ah, these are the cunning words, empty. The sin can be one with God and sin is permitted by God. He created everything. You know? He made weed, so just smoke it. You know, yeah, He also made poison. You want to eat it? We're very selective, aren't we? The words that would um, contradict and oppose the clear teaching of God. People might say, well, God is not going to keep you from heaven or the kingdom because you have sex with your girlfriend or boy. Because you, if you really love each other, that's all that matters. Sounds so nice. God's not going to keep you out of heaven because you have a potty mouth. Really? Hmm. God made you this way, they'll say. How can he find fault in you? God's got to love. Hmm. Deception. Listen to Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, philosophia, the love of wisdom of man. Empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, According to the basic principles of the world, the ABCs, and not according to Christ. What is your standard? What is your measure? What is your plumb line? You go to the plumb line to the world, you're going to be real crooked and destroyed. You go by the plumb line of the Lord, he'll straighten you out and you'll have a good life. Notice the Apostle Paul proclaimed... The simple reason for the warning to the believer. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul pointed back to the sexual sins he has just prohibited believers to practice. He's prohibiting believers, not non-believers. 
The implication being they had the capacity. The implication being some were probably involved in sexual sin. Paul pointed out the wrath of God was being poured out on some of these sins that were being practiced, which means on the individuals. The word wrath means his natural anger and disposition against sin due to God being holy. His holiness demands his wrath, and his wrath demands his holiness. They're two sides of the same coin, ladies and gentlemen. He's so serious about it that he poured out his wrath on his son who became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteous of God in him. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Psalm 22. Jesus quotes, verse 3 and 4, he says, because you are holy. Hmm. Romans 1.18 said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of man who suppress the truth of unrighteousness. That means God is pouring out his wrath at different times every day to people living in different ways. We just don't know who. Romans 2.5 but in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasure enough for yourself, wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the more we, we reject God, the more we grieve God, the more we put off repentance, you're storing up like water being built up in a dam. It gets so full, it just busts forth. That's the judgment. Romans 2a says, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life, and the wrath of God abides in him. I want to give you the love of God. I want to tell people about the love of God, but I've got to tell you, his wrath is on you first. His wrath is on all sin. But he wants to pour out his love. It comes through repentance. So that you're able to turn from from sin on every level. The word comes means to come from one place to the other. The tense is the indicative present middle voice. The wrath of God is being poured out by his own doing on the children of disobedience for sins by God himself in the present world. And we know he chastens Christians too. 1 Corinthians 11 says some of you are sick and some of you God has killed. Okay? Very clear. Look at verse 7. The Apostle Paul proclaimed the stern command to believers. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Paul gave a simple and sound conclusion to the matter of sexual sin or any other sin. The word therefore means conclusion. In conclusion, consequently in view of the facts stated about sexual sin, Paul gave the only sensible command possible. The command is to abstain from sexual sin. Do not be partakers. He's talking to Christians. This is another imperative command in the present tense and middle voice. Stop Partaking, literally. Wow. The negative is the result of the positive. They were to obey it continually. The, particip the participation is with 
the unbeliever. Two words, with them. With them. Do not be partakers with them. There's a contrast. You, the believer, don't be a partaker with them. Children of disobedience, the children of God. Side by side. This is what's going on. The possibility is always present. The believer still has sin nature, as you know. The possible deception is real. Otherwise, why write the letter? If there's no chance of Christians being deceived, turning away from God, being enslaved again, being twice worse off, as Peter says, why write the letter? Simple. The sin of the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels that left their first estate was sex. Read it in Second Peter chapter 2 in the book of Jude. It points back to Genesis 6 and 19. The God-ordained directive for sex is marriage, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman in the context of sexually. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the wife or the husband render to the wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. So, ladies, if you have too many headaches, take an aspirin. Gentlemen, when she has a headache, be sensitive. Don't deny each other just because you're mad or because you're thinking of yourself. That's what he's talking about here. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wow, that's a switch too. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words... If you're seeking the Lord for two days or so or three days, you want to seek him in prayer about something. Say, hon, I don't want to have anything to do sick. I want to just give myself to the Lord. I'm going to fast. So you both know what's going on. You don't have to do it secret and now if I tell her I'm going to lose my room. No, you're husband and wife. Just make sure you say, hon, I'm going to just keep myself away from you for a year. No, not in your life. Your body belongs to me. Okay, that's what he's talking about, all right? Any sexual activity apart from our husband or wife makes Christ one with their sin. Listen carefully. Now, the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God has raised up the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Perish the thought. God forbid. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 through 15. The evidence of sexual deception is all around our society. 
our nation and the world. As young and old are involved in every and any sort of sexual practices today. Never in my life would I believe that we would become so degenerated in our American society. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the negative. Listen to the glorious positive. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. How thankful we should be for God. How thankful we should be to God for what he's done for us. And how we should warn the young people. And the single people to be obedient to God. And have their mind blown on that night. (laughs) Amazing. This is the potential danger of living in perverted love. It's always possible, even for believers. And so Paul has exhorted the believers dealing with those living for sexual lust by using others, characterized by these three things. The person living for perverted love. The penalty for living by perverted love and the potential danger of living in perverted love. He's talking to Christians, not the non-believer. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. Deal with our hearts. And Lord, we thank you for your, your grace, cleansing us, making us whiter than snow. And renewing our minds and our hearts. Thank you for our wives, our husbands. Thank you for just your grace over our life. We pray for those that are single. Pray for those that are young. We pray that you would just keep them. They would give themselves to you. And that you would bless them, Lord. As you're praying. If you are here tonight. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God has brought you here to be saved. Maybe you're over the internet. Or you might be hearing us on the radio. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you are living as we have declared in our texts under sexual lust and you just can't find the right one, so to speak, and you're a slave to things of the physical nature, then God wants to transform your life and forgive you. You must call upon Him. You must acknowledge your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. And if you do that, He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. And he will make you his child. Give you a divine nature to be able to enjoy life. And see it in living color rather than black and white. But you must call upon him. If that is your desire to be born again. If you agree with God. That you will never inherit the kingdom of God. 
unless you're forgiven, then you can call upon his name right now. This is your prayer of repentance to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.